Well, let me invite you now to grab your Bibles and to turn them open to Galatians chapter 6. If you do not own a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. We also have some stacked up on the table in the foyer. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the Scriptures. Galatians chapter 6. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. Don't hesitate to use that resource to navigate the pages of the Bible. Galatians chapter 6. So last week we introduced the sentence that we want to unpack and explore further together in the life of our church. And it is this desire, it is this holy ambition that we want to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. We want to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. And so last week, when we were closing down our study of the book of Philippians, it kind of opened up a new story, a new seasonal emphasis in the life of the church as we introduced some some beginning kind of factors on what gospel-saturated relationships entail. And we said, one, that it involves our unique identity as sons and daughters of God. The fact that in Christ we have been brought into a multi-ethnic family and we want to affirm that identity of each other and we want to love and to relate to one another, not like a family, but as the family Jesus has redeemed us to become. And so identity becomes a big part of our gospel-saturated relationships of affirming that identity uh, of one another and then helping others find their identity and to locate their identity in Christ above and beyond any other place or any other location in this world. And then we also said that these gospel-saturated relationships, not only do they emphasize our unique identities in Christ, but they, they cultivate a spirit of hospitality among us so that we are greeting one another and relating to one another in hospitable ways. We are welcoming people into our lives and we are stepping into other people's lives in a hospitable fashion where we are treating one another with dignity and we are relating to one another as image bearers, as, as those that God loves and sent His Son to to live for and to die for and to claim through the resurrection. But then we also said that these gospel-saturated relationships, not only do they involve identity and hospitality, a gospel-saturated relationship is essentially a grace-saturated relationship. It means that we're going to relate to one another through and in the economy of grace. And we said last week that in the gospel, God treats us far better than we deserve. And so in our relationships with one another, what does that mean? Well, it means that you and I treat one another better than we may think each other deserves. It means we give grace and we lavish grace, that we respond and relate to one another according to the economy of God's grace, which is what we've been brought into in Christ. And so gospel-saturated relationships, they, they kind of start there with this identity and hospitality and, and learning to view and relate to one another on the basis of grace. But then I want to take us a, a step further down that road today by looking at Galatians chapter 6. Because here, Paul, again, he kind of takes up the theme of relationships and he impresses some things upon us that should characterize our relationships in the church saying if our relationships are going to be gospel-saturated, there are some features that surface in this passage that we want to embrace and take in as well. And one of the unique things about a gospel-saturated relationship is that it runs counterintuitive to the types of relationships we, are, we tend to approach, how we approach relationships in the world that is. You see, we live in a culture, in a context, where it seems like all the messaging around us and all the conditioning around us is to approach relationships on the basis of what you can get out of them. 
So I'm going to approach this person and I'm going to consume what I need from them. And if it ever gets to the point where they are no longer meeting my needs or I feel like I am being starved because they don't have what I feel like I need or what I want to get, then I'm going to move on to another relationship. I'm going to move on to another community. I'm going to move on to another situation, another relational dynamic. But gospel-saturated relationships, they do not approach relationships primarily in order to get Gospel-saturated relationships approach relationships primarily in order to give. What can I bring to you? How can I bless you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? That's the primary, the the first accent in a gospel-saturated relationship. And Paul brings some of that stuff out in verses 1 through 10 as he talks about uh, the ways in which we are to relate to one another in this dynamic. So beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. It says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spiritual of, spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. That is to say, he's not boasting because he's comparing himself to others. That's what that's getting after. For each will have to bear his own load. Each will have his own responsibility in this relationship or in life or whatever the case may be. Verse 6, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So four features of gospel-saturated relationships. Number one, you find there in verse one, we are, to, we are to learn how to restore the broken. If our relationships are going to be gospel-saturated, we must be committed to the awkward process of restoring the broken. I love how Paul begins this passage, and I love how he ends the passage. He begins it by affirming our familial identity. He says, brothers and sisters, he's saying, look, you're not like family, you are family, reminding them of that identity. But then at the end in verse 10, he says, you are part of the household of faith. You're part of the same family of God. You are engaged in the multi-ethnic family of faith. And that is a beautiful thing. And it is on that basis where we need to be willing to restore the broken. And here you have this emphasis on correction, this emphasis on helping someone who's stuck in sin or stuck in some self-destructive habit or uh, something along those lines. He's saying you need to be about restoring the broken. Moms and dads know what this is like when they view their kid and they view their kid making decisions that could harm them. What do you do? Well, you step up and you step in. You intervene. You do not sit back and say, well, I love my kid too much to call him out. I love my kid too much to correct him. You're not going to say that because that wouldn't be loving. 
But if you and I ever approach the family of faith where we are unwilling to step up and to step in when we see our brothers and sisters stuck in sin or they're in a habit of lifestyle that is robbing them of joy or robbing them of what God really wants to do in them and through them, we want to step up and step in. We want to restore the broken. That's the imagery of verse 1. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression... Now, this isn't like a one-time slip-up that we're calling everybody out for every little thing that we see. This isn't, I saw Andrew speeding down, the, the, down uh, Fremont Ave in order to get here on time, and, and I'm going to call him out on that because that, that wasn't a good example. That, that's not really the type of thing that's going on here. When, when he talks about being caught in a transgression, he's talking about a habitual way of thinking, a habitual way of acting that is self-destructive. It is a consistent pattern that is noticeable, that is discernible, and that will inevitably destroy them and what God wants to do in their lives. He's saying, look, the enemy has set a trap and someone has been caught in that trap. They've, they're now stuck and they're not growing spiritually They're stuck and they're not advancing in their relationship with Jesus. They're stuck and they're not being about all the things that Jesus wants them to be about. He's saying in those instances, that's when you, as a member of the family, need to step up, step in, and engage in the awkward, yes, conversations that are bent on correction, bent on restoration. He says, if anyone is caught in any wrongdoing, and then he uses this word, restore. Restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. And that word restore is a powerful image. It comes from two dynamics. On one hand, it's a medical image. And it speaks to that idea of what a doctor does when you dislocate a bone. And in order for your body to be put back in place, you have to be kind of broken again. It has to be set right. And you know if you've ever had a, a broken bone reset so that it might heal properly, that, that hurts initially, doesn't it? But it hurts in order to bring healing. It hurts in order to bring restoration. It hurts so that your body may function properly. Well, this is what Paul is saying here. We want to restore the broken so that they're no longer dislocated. We want to restore the broken so that they're no longer disjointed and unable to grow into a healthy member of the family. So we want to set bones right in the body, so to speak. So you have this imagery here of restoring, this medical image of setting a bone right. And that that can be painful and it can be hard. And it actually tells us something about the nature of sin. So we have a tendency to think about sin as something that we bring into our lives through these blatant bad things that people do or think about or whatever the case may be. And, and these things that we kind of bring in from the outside, they just need to move through us and get out of us. But what he's reminding us in this moment is that sin is more than something you bring in. Sin is something that dwells within, and as a result, it dislocates your affections. It dislocates your desires. It dislocates the way that you're thinking about God and about people. It dislocates your ability to love God completely and to love people compassionately. He's saying, look, the way you grow as a follower of Jesus and as a member of the family of God isn't by necessarily trying to get sin to pass through you, but trying to get your affections in the right order. So that the good things that God blesses you with, they do not consume you or become God to you. Instead, what happens is you take these good things and you put them in the right place so that you're holding them with an open hand. You're not clinging to them as we talked about in Philippians. You're just relating to God's good gifts. You're relating to God's good creation in ways that are orderly. 
in ways that are honoring to God, helpful to you, and helpful to the people around you. But when you get stuck in a transgression and some of these good things become God things in your life, a restoration, a correction, something needs to happen so that you can be put right, put back in order, so to speak. You know, much of the Christian life is simply trying to reorder our affections. It's trying to get our affections in the right place and attached appropriately to that which God gives us and attached appropriately to the God who loves us and wants what's best for us. And so part of that restoring, restoring the broken is helping people kind of get back into the right order, to put affections in the right place, to put desires, attach those desires to the right objects. And then there's also a dynamic where this word restore, it's not only a medical image, it's actually a missional image. It's a missional image in the sense that it's the same word that Jesus would use when he calls his disciples and he tells them, look, I'm going to make you become fishes of men. And at the moment of calling the disciples to, into that world and onto that mission, it says the disciples were mending their nets. And Jesus comes and he says, now you're mending your nets. I want you to cast your nets on the other side. They get fish and he engages them about kingdom life and he engages them about missional living. And so right here, not only is restore a medical dynamic, it's a missional dynamic. And so one of the reasons we want to restore the broken is because we want people to be fully engaged in that which God is doing in this church, in this city, and around the world. We don't want any disciple to miss out on the joy of serving Jesus in the world that is. We don't want any disciple to miss out on their missional calling to make disciples of all nations. And if they're stuck in their transgressions, they're going to miss out because they're not progressing. They're not advancing. They're not being about that which Jesus would have them be about. And so Paul says in order to get into a more healthier rhythm, you need to be about restoring the broken, helping one another keep moving in the faith. Now, there's a couple of temptations that your heart's going to face at this moment when we talk about correction or restoring or confrontation. Anytime those themes kind of come up in our discipleship, we're going to respond in one of two ways. One of which you're going to be tempted to, some of your personalities are going to tempt you to want to shrivel up in the face of that type of calling. And you're just going to kind of shrink back. You don't want to have the awkward conversations. You don't like having tough talk. And, and you don't want a person to feel unloved by you. So you're not willing to maybe call something out or raise an issue that you might be seeing as habitual in their lives and asking them about it or correcting them in it. And so you might just kind of shrivel back and shrivel up as a result. But then there are other personality types in our church that aren't maybe not shriveling up, but you like to... <laughs> You go in the exact opposite extreme. You're not shriveling up. You're swelling up in the face of this. You love confrontation. You love correction. You, you love going to the mat with people. And so you just kind of swell up. And you feel like this is a green light for you to go after everything that you see. And that's certainly not the case. You do not become a holy hall monitor, holy hall monitor in the kingdom of God going after every hiccup and every trip up and every slip up that you see. Now, you remember 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, that love covers a multitude of sins. Not everything needs to be called out. Not everything needs to be dealt with. But when you see someone stuck, when you see someone's life bordering on self-destruction due to transgression and sin, you love them enough to speak up. You love them enough to step in. You love them enough to engage in a conversation that is, that's focused on restoration. 
And so here you have G.K. Chesterton's words. This is why he would say what he says in the quote you read earlier, that love is not blind. That is the last thing that it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. If we really love each other, we're going to seek to restore the broken among us. But there are some qualifiers in the passage. He says, let those who are spiritual do this. In other words, if you're going to engage in some type of corrective conversation, uh, you need to be somewhat healthy and humble in your own spiritual relationship with Christ. This is why Jesus would say the types of things that he does in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 7. There's that popular verse, verse 1 of, that, of chapter 7 that everybody loves to quote. And they kind of use it anytime somebody's asked about sin or every time somebody's asked about a, um, a habit that may be forming that is unhealthy and doesn't honor Jesus. And so they love to throw this verse out there, judge not lest you be judged. And they'll quote Matthew 7, 1. But as we have said over and over and over again, every verse comes with a context, and we should never detach a verse from its context. This is one of them. Because if you keep reading in chapter 7, Jesus is not saying don't restore the broken. He's not saying don't help those who are stuck in sin. He's, he's saying, no, just make sure that you're repenting yourself. This is what he says in verse 5. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly the to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, those who are spiritual should seek to restore the broken. Those who are humble, those who are repentant, those who are not uh, approaching those conversations with an air of superiority or an air of saying, well, I'm not as bad as you or anything like that, but it's simply saying, I'm going to help get you into a healthier, healthier place. And so we want to restore the broken and we want to do so as spiritual people, as maturing followers of Jesus but then he also says you want to do it with a spirit of gentleness. We want to be gentle when we do this. We don't want to just come in heavy-handed and hard-fisted every time we talk to someone about their struggles. We want to recognize this is why Paul gives the warning at the end of verse 1. Keep watch over yourself lest you be tempted. He's saying, look, when you step into that conversation, don't think you are beyond the pale of temptation. Don't think you are beyond that particular struggle or you are beyond that particular temptation. If you do, you won't be gentle because you're not going to seek to understand the person in the midst of their struggles. You're just going to want to fix them rather than to lead them and point them to Jesus, who is the only one who can ultimately restore a person to a healthy rhythm of life. And so we want to be spiritual. We want to be gentle and we want to exercise caution. Anytime we step into these types of conversations with one another, seeking to nurture gospel saturated relationships, we want to exercise caution because we don't want to ever set ourselves up to being anyone's savior. We don't want to be taken by a Messiah complex that says, I'm going to fix this person. I'm going to set them right. I'm going to give them the technique needed for them to get their life back on track. We are not saviors. We are not messiahs. So we want to keep watch on ourselves lest we be tempted to think we are stronger than we are. When we get there, we'll stop pointing them to Jesus. We'll start pointing them to all types of other solutions, to all types of other remedies other than Jesus. And we never want to go there because restoration doesn't exist outside of Jesus. So we want to restore the broken. And then Paul goes on in verse 2 and he takes up a different theme. He says, not only do you want to be willing to restore the broken, he also says gospel-saturated relationships, they actually support the burden. You want to support the burdened. Meaning you want to be about relationships where you are helping people who are hurting and struggling in a fallen world. 
So we move from this air of correction in verse 1 to this this focus on comfort in verse 2. This need for comfort as we support the burdened among us. You see, not everybody's life is hurting due to conscious sinful choices and conscious entertainment of sin in their life. No, sometimes they're just living life in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, they're going to find themselves being burdened. They're going to find the weight of life in a fallen world coming upon them and pressing them down. They're going to find themselves struggling with financial crises. They're going to find themselves struggling with demonic oppression and intimidation and and deception. They're going to find themselves with life-threatening diagnoses. They're going to find themselves with mental illnesses. There are burdens that come through life in a fallen world. And Paul is saying, look, if you're going to love one another well, if you're going to have gospel-saturated relationships, you need to learn how to support one another in the midst of that. We need to support the burdened. You know, when you, anytime you kind of try to minister to somebody who's hurting and you want to support the burden, you, you understand that, that in order to do so, you have to kind of understand where they are and what they're going through. But in order to understand someone, there's a sense in which you have to kind of stand under what they're going through. And you've got to kind of come alongside them and get with them underneath the weight of that pressure they're feeling so that the weight of that burden is relieved from them. But in order to relieve it off of them, you have to take it upon yourself, right? You can't bear someone's burdens if you're unwilling to carry some of the weight and the inconvenience of that burden on yourself. And in this sense, you and I are able to make the gospel visible to the watching world when we're willing to bear burdens, when we're willing to take the weight of people's struggles upon ourselves. And yes, that will be emotionally draining. Yes, that will be psychologically taxing. Yes, that will be even life-threatening. We saw a picture of this last weekend in Charlottesville where Heather Hare... The young lady, the young white lady who wanted to identify with ethnic minorities who were counter-protesting the white supremacist march through the University of Virginia. And what did she do? Well, she sought understanding, not simply intellectually, but she sought to stand under the burden that these populations were feeling. And so she crossed the line and she identified with them. She stood beside them. And what happened? Well, she put herself in harm's way as a white supremacist would then drive a car through the crowd and her life would be taken from her. It's a picture of what it means to support the burdened. The only way we can bear one another's burdens is if we're willing to come under that which, what, that which they are going through so that the weight of their struggles begins to fall upon us and it begins to apply some pressure to the lives that we're living in the world that is. But the beauty of being about being a part of a family of faith is that we're not the only one bearing burdens. We're all coming under these burdens of each other and we're all providing shoulder support and lifting up some of that weight. We're supporting the burden in these practical ways. And, and when we do, we understand that God ordinarily comforts people through community. The way that God brings his comfort and his relief to people isn't always through a quiet time in a closet. The way he tends to ordinarily bring his comfort to his people is through his people. This is exactly Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Listen to what he says. In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside, fears inside. But God, who comforts the humble, 
comforted us. How? He comforted us by the arrival of Titus. He sent Titus to Paul. Do you understand that when you are willing to support the burdened, in many instances you become the answers to prayers that people are praying for those who are hurting. So that we don't want to just stand back and pray for burdens to be lifted in our church and burdens to be lifted from people's lives in our city or in our culture. No, we want to be a people who, as we pray, we're moving our feet to stand under the burden with them to lift up for them. That's how you support the burdened. And yes, it is inconvenient. Yes, there are many, as a result, we don't want to do this very naturally. This is why our relationships have to be gospel-saturated. A guy by the name of John Stott would put it this way. He said, God's comfort was not given to Paul through his private prayer and waiting upon the Lord, but through the companionship of a friend and through the good news which he brought. Human friendship is which, in which we bear another's burdens is part of the purpose of God for his people. So we should not keep our burdens to ourselves, but rather seek a Christian friend who will help to bear them with us. Gospel-saturated relationships support the burden. But then when you move into verses 3 and 4, you, you find a couple of reasons why this doesn't happen easily in the church. And it doesn't happen easily through the church. And the, and the reason for that is called pride. And there are two types of pride present in verses 3 and 4, one of which is called the pride of self-sufficiency. This is the type of pride that says, I don't need help. This is the type of pride that says, whatever burdens I am under, I'm going to own myself and I'm not going to let anybody come alongside me to help lift them for me. That's the pride of self-sufficiency. I don't need help. It's not unlike Muhammad Ali on that famous story where he's flying on an airplane and He's not buckled, and the stewardess comes by and says, hey, you need to buckle your seatbelt. And he looks back and says, hey, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And then the stewardess responded to Muhammad Ali. It is said that she, she replied, yeah, but Superman doesn't need an airplane either. Get buckled. It's this pride of self-sufficiency that says that I don't need help, as illustrated there. But then there's a, there's a better example for us in the book of Numbers where you have Moses who's leading the people of Israel into the promised land and the burden of that leadership responsibility, the burden of that ministry is, is heavy upon his shoulders. And listen to what he says in Numbers chapter 11, verse 14. He says, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. I need help. I need people to support the burdened here with me. I need some to come alongside me and to help me in this ministry, to help me in this holy ambition. And you need that type of help too. So if you are burdened by anything right now, don't try to carry that burden on your own. Invite your brothers, invite your sisters in to help you. Don't sell yourself short or cut yourself off from the help that is available to you in the body due to the pride of your own self-sufficiency. But then a second type of pride that you see here is the pride of superiority. One says, I do not need help. The pride of superiority says, I'm too important to help. The pride of superiority kind of sounds like this. I'm not really engaged in supporting the burden because my schedule is my schedule. My downtime is my downtime. My boundaries are firmly fixed and they can't be adjusted in any way, shape, or form in order to support someone who is burdened around me. 
And this is the pride of superiority, saying, I am too important to help. My schedule is too important. My resources are too important. My this or that or the other is too important to sacrifice, too important to adjust, too important to uh, shape towards or to make room for supporting anyone who is burdened around me. And any time that we do that, we're not saturating our relationships with the gospel. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5, there's a picture of this in the Old Testament where the people of Israel have just kind of been brought back out of exile and they're brought back into Israel and they're trying to reconstitute themselves as God's people in the world. And part of that involves the burden of building walls to defend themselves against other armies and other forces and that type of thing. But there's an interesting moment where in Numbers chapter 3, verse 5, we are told that their nobles... Their nobles in Israel did not lift a finger in the service of the Lord. They thought they were too important to join the people of Israel in bearing that burden and helping build the walls. And I'm wondering if there's a hint of the pride of superiority that is keeping you from coming underneath other members of this church and helping us do the things that God has called us to do and serve the ways that God has called us to serve? Is there, is there something hindering you from supporting the burden? It, perhaps it's the pride of superiority and you think maybe you're too important to help, that your schedule is more valuable than other people's schedules. Your resources are more precious than other people's resources. Not only are you failing to support the burden, if you have that mentality, you're selling yourself short too. You're, you're selling yourself short from the opportunity to image forth Jesus to another human being. You're selling yourself short to, of being about that which Jesus is about in this city and in this world so that you come under other people's burdens and you help lift them by allowing them to inconvenience you. You help lift those burdens by allowing them to infringe upon your resources. You help lift the burden. And yes, it is hard. And yes, you'll take a hit. But isn't that exactly what Jesus has done for us in the gospel? Jesus is the ultimate burden bearer. He took the hit our sin deserved. He took our sufferings upon himself when he went to the cross. Why? Because we deserved it. No. Because we were entitled to it. No. He did it because of love. He did it because of grace. He did it because of gospel. Now, there's a difference in here in verses 2 and 5. There's, in verse 2, there's an emphasis on burden. Then in verse 5, there's an emphasis on load. And it's very, uh, or what's called a load. And it's very important that you understand the difference between those two. A burden is something someone can't carry on their own. Their life isn't flourishing because the weight of a fallen world is too heavy. A load is something a person can carry. A load is more like personal responsibility. The image there is like a day pack that you would take on a day hike. That, that you can carry. Nobody's going to carry that pack for you. It's, it's on you to do it. Now, there are some things that are burdens people want to treat like loads. There are burdens in people's lives that they want to treat like loads, thinking they don't need help from others, and so they don't want to bring other people into that situation. And so they're treating burdens like loads. But then on the flip side, there are some who treat loads like burdens. Everything's a crisis. They can't do anything that is responsible. They can't get to work on time and therefore keep a job. It's a load, not a burden. Not everything is a crisis. Not everything is a burden. And we need to learn how to discern the difference between the two. 
And one of the ways you discern the difference between a burden and a load is by being deeply involved in community. It's by being surrounded by other family members, saturating your relationships with the gospel so that they can help you discern, okay, no, that's a burden. You can't handle that. We're going to help you. That's a load. You need to exercise a little more wisdom here. You need to exercise a little more responsibility here. That's a load that that you can handle, and I want to encourage you to do that. So we have to discern between a burden and a load if we're going to learn how to support the burden. Not everything is a crisis. So missional communities is a wonderful opportunity to do that. If you're not a part of a missional community, I would encourage you to plug into one so that you can see this carried out in a myriad of ways. But then when you get to verse 6, you find that third feature of a gospel-saturated relationship, and it goes like this. He says, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. In other words, number three says that we, if we're going to have gospel-saturated relationships, we need to center our life on the scriptures. We need to be taught and we need to teach. The word for taught and teach in that verse is the same word for catechism, meaning you need to learn the foundations of the faith. You need to learn the gospel. You need to be instructed on the fundamentals of the Christian faith. When you do, you will then center your life on the scriptures. That's when you'll be able to discern what's a load, what's a burden. That's when you'll be able to discern, okay, when is somebody stuck in sin and needs restoration and how can I do that gently? Well, I'm centering my life on the scriptures so I can be about those activities. God, we want to center our lives on the scriptures so that we can grow in the ways that God would have us grow. This is what he's getting after there in verse 6. And you're going to find that as you center your life on the scriptures, the scriptures will then ignite a type of life and the types of relationships in you and through you that are gospel saturated, that are capable of producing a lot of good. This is why he talks about sharing all good things in verse 6. And then when you get down to verse 9 and 10, he says, let not... Let us not grow weary of doing good. And then in verse 10, as we have an opportunity to let us do good to everyone. So he's saying not only are you centering your life on the scriptures so that you are knowing the word, you're letting the word do the type of work in your life that it intends to do. In other words, you're studying the scriptures not to acquire information. You are studying the scriptures in order to ignite obedience in order to ignite gospel-saturated relationships so that every time you read the scriptures and study the scriptures, you're trying to discern, God, uh, how, how does this apply to me? What do you want me to obey in light of what we just read? And so as you're even exposed to this teaching tonight, you should be asking yourself, is there anybody in my life who's stuck in sin that I need to go to and I need to lovingly correct and help restore? You need to ask yourself the question, is there anybody in my life who is burdened, who's having a hard time moving forward because life's pressures is is crushing them? Who can I come and stand under and help and serve? It is your study of the word that ignites that type of activity so that you are doing good to all people, especially those in the household of faith. You center your life on the scriptures, not just to acquire, not at all really to acquire information, but to ignite transformation so that your relationships will be saturated in the gospel. Now, there are some churches who are big Bible churches, and there are other churches that are big do-good types of churches. And just kind of seems like churches tend to swing from one end of the spectrum to the other. And if there's a prayer, I would love for you to join me in praying for our church. Isn't that we would be a big Bible church and not a doing good church or a good doing church, but little, that we would be both and. 
that we would recognize that when the word is occupying the, the center of our church's identity, the word will not let us go without anything else. It will ignite and inspire the types of relationships and the types of activities that are life enhancing and that will contribute to life flourishing. And so we want to center our life on the scriptures. And when we do that, that's when we're going to learn how to restore the broken and support the burdened. And then you move on into verse 7. You find the final feature. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And he gets into this powerful picture of agriculture, saying, I want you to sow in the Spirit. In other words, I want you to feast your life on the things of God. Sow in the Spirit, not according to the flesh. You have two fields there and you're always sowing seeds and it matters what types of seeds you are throwing where. He's saying if you sow seeds in the flesh, you're going to reap destruction or disintegration or corruption. If you sow in the Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. The life of God is going to flourish through you. It's going to be a beautiful thing. He's saying sow in the Spirit. This is how you grow in gospel-saturated relationships. And it's a simple principle, really. It's just you reap what you sow. If you sow in the flesh, you're going to reap corruption of the flesh. If you entertain unholy thoughts and you love feasting on unholy images and you just fill your life with all types of things that, are not, that do not square with the kingdom of God, you're going to reap disintegration. You're going to reap corruption. Your, your life is going to come unraveled. But if you're sowing in the Spirit, meaning you're setting your mind on the things of God, you're filling your thoughts with the gospel, you're stirring your affections by prayerfully considering all that God has done for you in Jesus, remembering your identity, seeking to love your neighbors as yourself, sowing in the Spirit, that's when flourishing will begin to happen. You reap what you sow, and Paul wants to make sure you are sowing the right stuff. John Stott would say elsewhere when he explains kind of what sowing is. He says, every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fancy, wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in influence that is unholy, we know we won't be able to resist eventually. Every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we read Pornographic literature, every time we take a risk that strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Saying that which we sow has everything to do with our thoughts. It has everything to do with our, our feelings as we're, what we are harboring, what we are entertaining, thoughts and deeds. And he's saying one of the reasons some of you are not growing the way that you hope and you're not experiencing the intimacy with God in all its vitality is because you're not sowing in the spirit. You're sowing in the flesh and you're going to reap what you sow. Holiness is a harvest. Joy is a harvest. If you're sowing in the flesh, you're not going to experience all that God has for you. You're not going to press into gospel-saturated relationships. Your life is going to be lacking. And so we want to sow in the Spirit so that gospel-saturated relationships are nurtured among us, that the life of the kingdom begins to blossom in us and through us. 
so that the fruit of the Holy Spirit would begin to bloom, so that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control, that those would become ordinary traits in our lives, just blooming because we're sowing in the Spirit. We're thinking about Jesus. We're communing with the saints. We're doing the things that God has clearly told us to do in the Scriptures, and we're sowing in the Spirit by being about what Jesus is about. But notice what Paul says at the end. He gets into verses 9 and 10, and he says, look, this whole idea of of growing in gospel-saturated relationships, it's hard. It's challenging. This is why he has to tell us, do not grow weary of doing good. This is why he's basically saying, don't give up in this. For in due season, you will reap if you do not give up. Two times he says, don't quit. Two times he says, gospel-saturated relationships require endurance. Where does endurance come from? How do we keep doing good? How do we keep pressing in? Well, you can only do so when you remember that that which Paul is calling us to in this passage is what Jesus has already done for us in the gospel. Essentially, he's just reminding us, you need to be towards each other the way God and Jesus has been towards you. I mean, you just think about who Jesus is and what he has done, right? Didn't Jesus enter the world to restore the broken? Didn't he come proclaiming liberty to the captives to bring freedom to those who were stuck in sin? Didn't he come to bring forgiveness and to acquire our salvation, our redemption, our liberation? Didn't he come to restore the broken? Didn't Jesus bear our burdens when he went to Calvary? Didn't Jesus bear our burdens all the way to the cross so that he would take our, not only our sin upon himself, but he would take our sufferings upon himself so that he might flip the script on them and God's promise that he, can do, that he will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose will be fulfilled? Isn't that all brought into us and for us through Jesus' death on the cross? He's reminding us, look, I want you to be towards one another the way God and Jesus has been to you and for you. Jesus restores the broken. Jesus has borne your burdens. Jesus has centered his life on the scriptures. He obeyed his heavenly father in every moment and of every day. And his life is now pulsing in you so that you too can live an obedient life. Maybe not perfectly, but progressively. You too can center your life on the scriptures as Christ has made a way for you to do so. And of course, Jesus sowed in the Spirit when He went to the cross and He gave His life up there and He did for us what we could not do for ourselves, sowing in the Spirit, making a way for His Spirit to be purchased for us, His Spirit to be provided to us so that we might live in eternal life so that we might know God and be filled with his Holy Spirit and empowered by his presence in our lives. It's all acquired for us in the gospel. And when we get that, all of a sudden we're going to turn our attention to and fix the eyes of our faith upon Jesus who endured the cross, despising its shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father interceding for us, helping us, empowering us, saving us all day, every day. This is how we begin to do the types of things that Paul is describing in this passage. This is how we find the resources needed to restore the broken. 
This is how we find the resources needed to support the burdened and to center our lives on the scriptures and to sow in the spirit. We find the resources for doing those things when we fix the eyes of our faith upon the one who lived and died and rose again, upon the one whose spirit is now at work in us to enable us to do these types of things. So as we step into the future, let's do so seeking to saturate our relationships in the gospel. Let's be a family that restores the broken, that supports the burdened. Let's be a people who centers our lives on the scriptures, seeking to learn them and to live them. Let's be a people who is sowing life in the spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that we would sow in the spirit over these next few moments, that you would give us grace to to hear your voice and to be stirred by your spirit, to, to think about what you want us to think about, to focus on what you want us to focus on. And I pray that you would call disciples to do specific things in light of this passage. I pray that you would bring to our minds those that we know and those that we love who need to be restored, who need to be assisted out of a self-destructing habit or a self-destructing pattern. God, would you bring to mind those who are being crushed by the burdens of life and would you show us wise and faithful and fruitful ways to stand under those burdens with them and to support them and to allow the weight of their burden to fall upon us in some way, shape, or form. God, would you help us to see whether or not we're approaching the scriptures in a way to gain information or if we're approaching the scriptures to ignite transformation. God, would you help us to see where we are sowing in the flesh and would you give us grace to repent of that and to begin sowing life in the Spirit? Would you, Spirit, counsel us and instruct us and empower us on what that means in particular and specific ways now in Jesus' name? Amen.